please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, where we continue with our reading through the New Testament this Lord's Day. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. <clears throat> And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and there abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's ch chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration 
unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. There aren't too many places uh, that uh, I would uh, do this, but uh, I think it's necessary to correct a mistranslation of a particular word in this chapter, and that is the word Easter. The word Easter does not appear uh, at all. That is simply uh, uh, the uh, translator's um, a particular word they substituted for the word Pascha in Greek, which is Passover. Passover occurs at the time of the Lord's resurrection or vice versa and uh, uh, at the time of the, of the Lord's uh, uh, death, I should say. And uh, therefore, the uh, translators have, uh, have uh, substituted the word Passover uh, or the word Easter for the word Passover. I think that's an important correction to note there. Otherwise, we may think, well, there is warrant for Easter in the scriptures after all. Our text this Lord's Day is the same as last Lord's Day, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 to 13. And we come to part two of the sermon begun last week. And uh, I will continue next Lord's Day with part three as we move through this particular uh, text. <clears throat> last Lord's Day, we considered the parties in Israel's new covenant. On the one hand, God through his appointed mediator, Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We also noted that Gentiles through faith in Christ have uh, been grafted into Israel's new covenant so that comprehended within Israel's new covenant are both Jews, which include believing adults and their children, and Gentiles, which also include believing adults and their children. Having determined who are the parties to the new covenant, we are now ready to answer the question as to why the new covenant was necessary. Two contrasting responses in general may be given to this question, and you'll find these, these responses uh, prevalent in various churches today. The first response is that the new covenant was necessary because the old covenant was contrary to the grace of God. In this erroneous view, the Old and New Covenants have little or nothing in common with one another, as we noted last Lord's Day. Moreover, not only is there little or nothing in common between them, but beyond that, these two covenants, according to this view, are contrary to one another, as contrary as death is to life and life is to death, according to this view. This mistaken view interprets the Old Covenant as instituted by God with Israel at Sinai as a covenant of works. The substance of this covenant, according to this view, is do this and you shall live. 
two passages in the New Testament are especially used to promote this idea. I'll not look them up for you. But the first one is 2 Corinthians 3.6, where the ministry of the law as a covenant of works is contrasted with the gospel as a covenant of grace. But the old covenant was not instituted with God as a covenant of works, as we shall see. But it had come rather in the time of, the, of Christ and the apostles, and no doubt before that time as well, to be perverted and viewed as such by many Jews. Thus this passage in 2 Corinthians 3.6 addresses a problem which arose from an abuse and not from its original intention. The second passage that is appealed to, and again there may be a few more, but these I think uh, encapsulate the passages that are appealed to to show how the Old and New Covenant were diametrically opposed to one another, according to this view. The second passage is Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, where, once again, the Old Covenant is perverted by the Jews to be a covenant of works. And Paul contrasts the law as a covenant of works with the gospel as a covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. Likewise, this passage also addresses a problem which arose from abuse and not from its original intention. For the Old Covenant, dear ones, was instituted by God with Israel at Sinai. Although it may have been misinterpreted, abused, and perverted by man to become a covenant of works by which they thought they could earn their salvation by keeping God's law, it was not instituted as such by God. But rather it was instituted as the next stage of growth in the covenant of grace after the covenant made with Abraham. Well, that's one view that may be represented today of why the new covenant was necessary. The second view, and there may be various modifications uh, under this general view, but the second view is essentially this, that the new covenant was necessary because it was fulfilled, because it fulfilled the old covenant. The new covenant, or the old covenant, is realized in the new covenant. Now, this is certainly the biblical view. For God never intended, as we have said, the old covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai to be an end in itself. The old covenant was always intended by God to yield to a covenant in which all of the promises made in the old covenant would be fulfilled, would be realized, actualized in the new covenant by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in Hebrews 10, 10, verse 1. It says there, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things 
can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. There very clearly the law there is spoken of the outward administration of the ceremonial law, which is a part of the Old Covenant. The Apostle teaches at this particular point that those ceremonies were shadows of good things to come. They portended, they, they typified, they pictured those good things to come. And so this, was the, this is the proper biblical view that the Old Covenant is in fact realized in the New Covenant. You see, according to this view, the two covenants are not at one another's throat as enemies, as in the previous view. But rather, according to this view, they give appropriate honor to one another as different stages of growth of the same covenant of grace. The old covenant, dear ones, is no more an enemy of the new covenant than infancy is to adulthood. Or as the seed of a flower is to the blossom of the flower, or as a cocoon is to the butterfly. However, these covenants, the old and the new covenants, do indeed become enemies. And this is a time in which they do become enemies. They do become enemies through the perversion of man when he replaces the new covenant with the Old Covenant, as if the Old were better than the New, which was the very reason for Paul writing this epistle. It was to demonstrate the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant. The time of the Old Covenant had come to an end. It had served its purpose. It had pointed to Christ. Christ has come and ratified the New Covenant with his blood. The last Lord's Day, we considered the first main point from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, and that was the parties involved in the New Covenant. We saw that taught in Hebrews 8, 8. This Lord's Day, we shall look at the second main point in our outline, the weakness of the Old Covenant. And we'll be considering today Hebrews chapter 8, verses 9 and 13, and then next Lord's Day, we shall reflect on the third main point, the blessings of the New Covenant, verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. And so, let us turn our attention then to the weakness of the Old Covenant. Look with me, if you have your Bibles opened, to Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> And we're looking at verse 9 and verse 13. Verse 9 says, and I should probably pick up the context from verse 8, and I'll start where the Lord begins by saying, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And then verse 13. In that he saith, 
a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Dear ones, there are two weaknesses identified here in these two verses in regard to the old covenant. The first weakness is on the part of Israel in breaking the old covenant, as we find in Hebrews 8 9. And the second weakness is in the old covenant itself due to its temporary nature in Hebrews 8.13. Let us seek to understand each of these weaknesses so that we might more fully appreciate and enjoy the blessings of the new covenant which have overcome these particular weaknesses that were in the old covenant. And why, therefore, we along with Paul, believe that the new covenant is superior to the old. First of all, let us look at a weakness on the part of Israel in breaking the old covenant. We read already Hebrews 8, 9, which speaks to this particular issue. Paul presents an argument to the Hebrew Christians living at that time, which was designed to show them the amazing condescension of Christ in making a new covenant with them. He does so by taking them back to the old covenant and bringing before their mind's eye graphic pictures of the Lord's amazing condescension and deliverance of them through their forefathers and granting to them deliverance from Egyptian bondage. The Apostle Paul at this particular point, is like, if I were to use some kind of a parallel today, he's like opening up the album. And he's going back into the past and showing them pictures of how God delivered his people. Images that would come to their mind because they had been been so often, uh, indelibly, these images indelibly imprinted upon their minds how God delivered his people in this way, in this way, in this way. How he redeemed them, how he showed them and proved to them to be a faithful husband. <clears throat> the Lord, dear ones, did not, in taking Israel to be his people, he did not go to the palaces of the mightiest nations of the earth to find for himself a royal bride. Nor did he go to the academies of the greatest nations of the earth to find for himself a wise bride. Nor did he go to the lenders of the richest nations of the world at that time to find for himself a wealthy bride. No, the Lord stooped ever so low, as low low as he could possibly have stooped. in order to become a suitor to court and to woo to himself an impoverished, idolatrous, obstinate, and enslaved nation. The time in which the Lord courted Israel was when he came to her as an enslaved people in Egyptian bondage. Having no way by way of human resources to set herself free from Pharaoh and the bondage the difficult slavery to which she was bound, the Lord stepped forward 
as Israel's knight in shining armor in order to deliver her by his mighty hand. The Lord states in Hebrews 8-9, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is how the Lord condescended to Israel. Thus in all of the plagues poured out upon Egypt in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea and in taking Israel by the hand and leading her across the Red Sea to safety on the other side. The Son of God humbled himself to love and to woo an undeserving nation unto himself. The Lord then brought Israel after being delivered from the Red Sea. He brought Israel to Mount Sinai where he covenanted with her to be his bride. And Israel entered into the old covenant with the Lord and ratified that marital covenant with the Lord in the most solemn ceremony as we find in Exodus chapter 24. Verses 7 and 8. Listen to these words. And he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. This book of the covenant were all of the commandments which the Lord had given, not merely the Ten Commandments, but all of his his commandments that that, uh, he had given to Moses. So Moses read in the audience of the people, and they said, that is, the people said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. So the covenant was read. God said, I will be your God. And they agreed. They said, we will be your people. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. The covenant was ratified, sealed, and authenticated by the blood of the animal, sprinkled upon the people, that they were, in fact, God's people, and he was their God. I asked you, with what nation had the Son of God ever entered into such a covenant to be their God and husband and for that nation to be his bride? Unheard of. But God did so with Israel. However, Israel forgot and disregarded all the love demonstrated toward her in setting her free from destitution, idolatry, slavery, and in entering into a covenant of grace with her. She forgot. She ignored and neglected the covenant which God had made with her. For within 40 days, not 40 years, but within 40 days after her covenant to be the Lord's bride, she was worshiping her God by means of a detestable image of a golden calf. Unbelievable. How was the old covenant treated by Israel? Was the marriage covenant between God and Israel loved and honored by Israel collectively as a moral person? The Lord says, they, that is Israel, continued not in my covenant. In Hebrews 8, 9. 
As a result, the Lord states, I regarded them not. Hebrews 8, 9. That is, I neglected them and gave them over to their lovers to be misused and abused by her lovers that she sought after. The Lord, however, continued through his prophets to call her back unto himself to be a faithful people, to love him, to serve him, to trust him. But Israel eventually consented and conspired together and even put to death her heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Lord our God sets out to establish a new covenant with this people. A new covenant through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul argues, in light of how Israel as a nation broke the old covenant with the Lord, the weakness is not in the old covenant itself on this particular point, but rather is in the bride who bound herself by covenant. For dear ones, the old covenant was holy, good, and loving in binding Israel to God as her God and binding God to Israel as his people. This covenant was established upon the gracious spiritual and temporal promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look what the Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 13, where this covenant is now being renewed before entering into the promised land. I'll begin with verse 12. That thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath sworn unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The spiritual promise of God being their God and them being his people is here again uh, sworn by Israel. They enter in, renew this covenant which was originally established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls in Hebrews 8 9, he calls this old covenant my covenant which they broke. It was not a covenant of of Uh, that was intended for their destruction, but it was intended for their blessing to point them to Jesus Christ. He calls it my covenant. It was a matrimonial covenant. He owned it. He instituted it. And he gave it as an expression of his love for Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verses 6 through 8. Listen to the words of the Lord. How could it be more clear as to God's intention in his covenant with Israel? For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. 
but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The reason this weakness in Hebrews chapter 8 on the part of Israel is brought to the attention of the Hebrew Christians, uh, Hebrew Christians of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, is to show them the surpassing greatness of the new covenant wherein the Lord would condescend to again take to himself his bride of old and to enter into a new covenant with her to be her God and for them to be his people. A covenant this time not ratified with the blood of animals but with the blood of their husband who laid down his life to secure the redemption. To secure not only a temporal redemption or deliverance, but to secure for all eternity their bondage from the world, the devil and the flesh, and to bring her into a heavenly home which will never, ever pass away. Beloved, remember the words of Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 Are we better than Israel? Do we deserve any more to be in this matrimonial covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ to be bound to Him that He become our God and we become His people and was Israel of old? Do we not in various ways go a-whoring after other gods in our own lives? our actions and our attitudes, putting other things ahead of the Lord. And yet God has established this new covenant with us in His mercy and His grace. He has remained ever so faithful to us. We can talk about the, the wrath of God. We can talk, dear ones, about the love of God. Both are true. God is... Dear ones, a jealous husband. And he will judge his people when they go a-whoring. But dear ones, it is in fact in the heart of one who truly loves the Lord, though is very weak in various ways, it is the love of God which breaks that person's heart when he realizes what the Lord has done for him. Brings him or brings her to such a point of how could I have done this to my Savior. May the love of Jesus Christ crush your hearts today. Break the stubbornness and the obstinacy in our hearts that we might freely cast ourselves upon the amazing grace and love of our Savior and go forth to obey Him and Listen ever so attentively when his word is preached to us, for this is his love letter to you, his people. This is his covenant which he has made with you. And therefore we go to bed at a decent hour the night before the Lord's Day so that we can be rested and we can hear as clearly as possible what Jesus would say to us, his people. 
We're not having to keep our eyes opened with toothpicks. But rather, but rather we are able to alertly listen to the words of our Savior. Paul pleaded with the Hebrew Christians in his time not to be like the fathers of old in turning up their noses at the promises of forgiveness, justification, sanctification, and eternal life offered in the new covenant. And so do I plead with you today, dear ones, not to fall short of the grace of God by your refusal to embrace Christ and the amazing promises of love and forgiveness and which he has offered to you in the gospel. I want to consider the second weakness spoken of in our text, a weakness in the old covenant itself due to its temporary nature. Just to refresh your memory, I will again read for you Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The Lord declares that he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not only due to the weakness of Israel in breaking the old covenant with God, but also due to a weakness or perhaps Better, a better word would be an inadequacy in the Old Covenant itself. Not a sinful inadequacy, but an inadequacy of the sense of being, in the sense of being incomplete, immature, and temporary. This temporary nature of the Old Covenant, due to its immaturity, is inferred in the statements of Hebrews 8.13, when he says, a new covenant which he hath in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. A new covenant implies that the old covenant is aging and ready to disappear. The old covenant was never, as we said earlier, never intended to last forever. Whereas the new covenant is designated an everlasting covenant, according to Hebrews 13.20. Well, what were some of the weaknesses or inadequacies of the Old Covenant which made this covenant temporary? Well, I will list four in particular. And perhaps some of the... Uh, there may be included under these four that are mentioned others as well. But these are four weaknesses or inadequacies of the Old Covenant. First of all, under the Old Covenant, the mediator of the covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, had not yet come to complete the work of salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, dear ones, believers under the Old Covenant had the figure of Christ in the ceremonies and prophecies, but they did not have Christ in the sense of his finished work. Although believers under the Old Covenant had forgiveness of sins in token of Christ's sacrifice to come, 
Nevertheless, their sins remained in the account of the mediator until they should be actually paid by the realized atonement of Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, this particular truth is, I believe, alluded to. When the apostle says, Speaking of Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Again, I believe we see this same truth alluded to in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And for this cause, <clears throat> he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And finally, in Hebrews 10:18. Now where remission of these is, that is the remission of sins, paid in actuality by the death of Christ. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. No more offering for sin. Under the old covenant, redemption is anticipated. Under the new covenant, redemption is accomplished. What a source of great joy and great assurance that we can look back in faith to the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who actually purchased the salvation of his people. Dear ones, if David can write and sing of the blessedness of forgiveness in Psalm 32 under the figures of an anticipated Savior... How much more you and I can sing of the blessedness of forgiveness of a crucified and risen Savior who has actually accomplished our redemption. We do not continue to offer Christ as a sacrifice as if his one sacrifice was not efficacious and sufficient to save the most wicked of sinners as does the Church of Rome. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, a passage that strikes at the very heart of the Mass in showing the heinousness and the wickedness of the Mass. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. See, there it very clearly says that he should not be offered often as the Romish church says occurs in the Mass. The offering of Christ is a sacrifice. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is finished. It is accomplished. Dear ones, I've been in the age of anticipation in awaiting marriage to my bride. And I've been in the age of realization in enjoying marriage to my bride. And I can tell you which I appreciate and enjoy more. The age of realization, not anticipation. And so it is true, by way of our husband, our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now look back to realization, not mere anticipation. A second weakness or inadequacy in the Old Covenant was its temporary nature. As we said, it was never intended to be eternal. The priests of the Old Covenant perished. The tabernacle and the temple were destroyed. However, the high priest of the New Covenant is of the order of Melchizedek and ever lives to make intercession for us. The temple wherein the Lord performs his high priestly ministry is eternal in heaven and never passes away. This is a covenant, dear ones, that's never going to, to change. It is the basis for all the blessings we receive here upon earth and in heaven forevermore. It is an everlasting covenant. It is superior, therefore, to the old covenant. A third weakness or inadequacy in the Old Covenant was its complex system of worship, which was a great burden to God's people under the Old Covenant. According to Acts chapter 15, <clears throat> according to the Apostle Peter, speaking the Council of Jerusalem, the Senate of Jerusalem. He rises and speaks with regard to the ceremonial uh, sacrifices, the outward administration of the Old Covenant. He says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In this particular passage, the whole discussion with regard to circumcision as the outward sign, the Old Covenant, was being discussed as to whether that should be administered to Gentiles. The Apostle Peter says, why should we administer that which was such a great burden to us and to our fathers? You see, there was a physical burden. Think of circumcision. Certainly the pain that's involved in physical circumcision. A financial burden, the many sacrifices that were offered unto the Lord. And a wearing burden. And numerous and detailed regulations of washings and sacrifices and feasts and festivals and fastings and cleanness and uncleanness and on and on and on. Some have argued that 
since the complex and detailed forms of worship under the old covenant have been abrogated, that we under the new covenant are given more freedom so that we now can order our own forms of worship. That we can now introduce our own forms of worship. That is the freedom that we supposedly have under the new covenant. However, this, dear ones, is not the case at all. For all worship under the new covenant is still regulated according to the second commandment, which is a moral commandment that transcends the old covenant that continues into the new covenant. The second commandment is basically saying we're, we're not to worship the Lord our God by way of human devised inventions. That we are to worship the Lord our God only by what He has stated and stipulated and authorized within His Word. And so therefore we ask, where in the New Covenant do we find choirs? Where in the New Covenant do we find musical instruments used in worship? Where in the New Covenant do we find special music of solos and duets and trios and quartets? Where in the New Covenant do we find any holy days other than the Sabbath that we are regularly to observe? You see, dear ones, the very difference between Rome and Reformed churches is over to this very point. Rome has gone back to the Old Covenant and has introduced, again, incense, anointing of oil. She has introduced musical instruments. She has her altar. She has her sacrifices. She has her priesthood. We are married unto the Lord on the basis of that covenant and none of those things are included in this new covenant. Unfortunately and sadly, to our shame and to, to our own regret, we have participated in times past ourselves. Even within Protestant churches, these types of unfounded and unauthorized ceremonies. Let us therefore, dear ones, with regard to those who are professing Christians and who continue to return to the Old Covenant in these various ways or introduce worship that is not authorized within the New Covenant, let us, dear ones, remember where we were once and let us therefore go forth seeking to illuminate, seeking to help those who are yet practicing these old forms which are not a part of the new covenant. Let us be faithful. Let us be truthful. But let us love those who are yet in these old forms and seek to bring them out as God so graciously delivered us. The fourth weakness under the old covenant and finally there was, fine, there was a more scanty measure of God's grace and blessings demonstrated in extent and in degree under the Old Covenant. 
For God limited, for the most part, his grace to the nation of Israel. Though there were strangers that seemed to trickle in occasionally, for the most part, this covenant was established with the nation of Israel. And also within the nation of Israel itself, there appear to have been comparatively few actual believers at times. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the, the very generation that witnessed the deliverance of his people, God's people, out of Egypt, provide a case in point of how few believers there were. 1 Corinthians 10, 5, God is speaking of those who passed through the Red Sea and those whom God fed in the wilderness. And he says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In Hebrews chapter 4, says that they did not enter into his rest because they did not believe. There were times of reformation, surely, in Judah. We see those under righteous kings. <clears throat> but such was hardly ever the case in the, in the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, where there were times of reformation. Seems like Elijah cries out to the Lord, I'm all by myself, Lord. God does remind him that there are 7,000 that God has his number who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But 7,000, even in a few, in a literal sense, is certainly a small number compared to the number of people that were in Israel. <clears throat> Women under the Old Covenant were excluded from the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. Not so under the New Covenant. They were included in the covenant sign and seal of baptism. The degree of understanding and illumination was relatively small compared to that of the New Covenant with all of the revelation that God has given to us of his doctrine, of the coming of Christ, of the future in the New Covenant. We have so much more by way of Revelation and the Lord has illuminated our minds and our understanding to a greater degree. First Peter chapter one, verses ten through twelve, we find these words speaking of the salvation which was prophesied to come in at the in the new covenant. It says, "Of which salvation the prophets." have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, if, dear ones, the Old Covenant was one in which God's blessings were not expended as far as is the case in the New Covenant, how is it, I ask, that the sign and seal of the spiritual promises made to God's people, both professing believers and their male children in the Old Testament, and female children, but 
uh, only the, the, the sign and seal of that applied to the male children. How is it that in the Old Covenant it is limited and or how is it in the New Covenant that it has now become restricted and limited rather than uh, being spread more abundantly abroad? In other words, the blessing of applying the sign and seal of that matrimonial covenant was applied to children in the Old Testament, to a large category of those who were part of Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. We speak of the New Covenant as, as being more abundant in blessing, as being more abundant in extent and in degree. And yet, there are those who would restrict and limit the blessing that God gave to children in the Old Covenant and say they are no longer recipients of those same blessings. I would ask, where in any other case can we find a group of people who have, under the New Covenant, blessings restricted? Provide another parallel or example. In every case, one will find that the blessings are made greater. They are not taken from them. It is said that it was a national sign of that reason, since Israel as a nation uh, is no longer a nation with whom God is working, but with many nations. But I would say... Was this sign introduced at the time Israel became a nation? Was it introduced at Mount Sinai as a covenant sign and seal those blessings? No, it wasn't. It was introduced 400 and some odd years before under Abraham. Abraham received the sign and seal of that covenant, which was indicative, a token of spiritual blessings, not a national sign. And he was to apply it, not only to himself, not only to those who profess faith, but to even those who were the children of professing believers. You see, we need express warrant from God's word in the new covenant to restrict blessings that were given to our children under the Old Covenant. And such is never done in the New Covenant to restrict those blessings. But to the contrary, they are considered members of the kingdom of God. They are called holy. The promises belong unto them and they are included in baptisms in which the whole household was baptized. Since they are not specifically excluded from those blessings and they're not specifically excluded from household baptism, and we must assume that they are therefore included within that household that was baptized. Beloved, as we close today, let us not ignore nor neglect the new covenant which is proclaimed and offered to us today. As it's been read, as it's preached, whether we're young or whether we're old, what would you think of one who suffered from a deadly cancer and yet refused to receive the remedy that would heal him and restore him to health? What if the one who supplied the remedy had given everything he had 
even his own wife to provide a remedy for that particular ailment and this person refused to take that which was freely offered to him in the Old Testament there's a picture there which the Lord paints picture of the serpent that was hung upon a pole when Israel was bitten by poisonous serpents and life was promised to all who would look up to that serpent upon the pole that was hanging up there life was promised and life was realized by all those who did so they were healed you see dear ones this is the promise of the new covenant in Jesus Christ because Jesus in chapter in John chapter 3 says that that spoke of him who was to be lifted up upon the cross and this particular promise of life everlasting is made to all to whom the gospel comes all are invited to look in faith to Jesus Christ but only those who do look to look in faith to Jesus Christ receive the spiritual healing and I say again dear ones how much contempt how much shame can we cast upon Christ who has suffered and died and offers to us these particular blessings to turn our backs and to snub him by turning up our noses at these offers of love and mercy, grace and healing. God grant us this day that none of us would leave this room not having looked to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's with great joy, with a heart that's filled with with love and appreciation and gratitude that we do call out to Thee this day and do embrace afresh and anew the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do look to Christ who hung upon the cross, who became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We do, our Father, pray that neither adult nor child today who hears these promises made would be like the people of God in the Old Testament whom the serpents slew because and who the serpents killed because they would not look upon uh, the, uh, the serpent upon that uh, pole Many disbelieved, O Lord, hearing the gospel preached unto them in types and shadows and prophecies. But Father, we pray that neither we nor our children would be so foolish, so hard-hearted and obstinate as to refuse, O Lord, the very remedy to our spiritual ailment. Father, we pray that Thou would 
Speak to us this day by thy word and thy spirit. Encourage us in the life that we have in Christ, which has been purchased for us in the new covenant. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.